Some people have said, you know, maybe it'll be Barrick who takes out the mountain. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that. Oh. Like, I think people want mountain on hound action. That sounded dirty. Everything does to you. Welcome back to On the Throne, the Shadow on TV podcast, unofficial companion piece to the incomparable HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our fan email episode where we look back on this week's installment of Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails for the week, all part of a segment we call The Small Council. This week's episode was entitled The Dragon and the Wolf. It was the season seven finale. You listen to our ideas on Wednesday's Deep Dive. Now it's our turn to hear from you. Uh, this is the first week in a long time that I've been able to make it through all the emails. Because normally I'm doing the editing, uh, you would help curate the emails, I'll go through a portion, you kind of go through them first. This is the first week that I made it through all of them. Holy shit. Thank you everybody who writes in, uh, reading them, you put a lot of time into them. Uh, in between seasons, I'm going to personally make it my job to go back and thank everyone and, and at least throw everybody an email. I appreciate your work, people. Yeah, in case you didn't know, as these things get posted to the website, we're doing each of these by hand, uh, reading it, rating it, posting it to the website, and we're constantly writing back and forth to each other. Check this one out, and we're you know we're we're laughing about it, uh, just some of the hilarious stuff you guys write to us, and some of the insightful stuff that just really makes you scratch your head and go, "How the hell did we miss that?" So great job to everybody, uh, and again, please please continue to write these in. Uh, we do read them, so and we appreciate them greatly. Yes, I think we might need to put out a job posting at the local colleges for an intern. You think that would help? I think this job is too big for an intern, Big D. That's what I've actually been telling my boss who wants to uh, make the social media manager an intern position. No, no. This is a job for a 37-year-old man with a college degree. You know, as like Gene had said, we post them to the website manually. I came across one from a few weeks ago where it starts out, it's like, what if Gendry is really Jock and Hagar and he's been hired by Cersei to go kill all the Starks. And I was like, how did I miss this insanity? It deserves a second run through. What, what's amazing to me is how people from all over the world will get uh, right into us with uh, ideas that you haven't seen anywhere else on the internet, anywhere else in any forums. And they word things almost identically with the same exact ideas. And then you start believing. You go, oh, man, if, if two or three people are saying this, maybe there's some truth here. Well, I think I've realized what people get out of the show. Uh, we've often heard that it's as if you're you know, joining a conversation of friends just talking about the show. I think there might be another answer, that we're an avenue for people to say things that they couldn't say to anyone else. If, if anyone shared some of these thoughts with their coworkers or their family, you might think there was something wrong with them. And it's amazing that when we started off this podcast, uh, we were doing Westworld, and Westworld, uh, you know, really j lent itself to theories. So we went, oh, it makes sense. It's the type of show it is. It's sci-fi. There's a lot of mystery involved here. We don't know about the programming and the nature of the hosts and all that stuff. And I thought, when we got to Game of Thrones, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's a fantasy novel. There's not a nope. You guys found theories and everything. People are trying to find things that aren't necessarily there. It's part of the game now, I guess, that we're no longer passive TV viewers, we all want to be part of it, and it makes it entertaining, keeps the mind active and young. But thank you. Keep the insanity coming. Speaking of fan involvement, we launched the Thronies. We had a crazy idea to have the Throny Awards. It was just an overnight idea that actually stalled all of their production. We're like, we got to do this thing before we put the episode out for the for this, uh, deep dive. And so we came up with the Throny Awards. You can go to them at Shad on TV slash Thronies. And basically, we thought, wouldn't it be cool to do a season seven awards for the show? Overnight, over 200 submissions already of people voting into the Thronies. So we really, really appreciate that. And some of the people filled in uh, the write-in forms, the nominations, uh, with absolutely hilarious shit. So we'll get to some of those uh, later in the episode. Yeah, don't forget, vote. At the rate we're going here, we're hoping to get probably to about two to 3,000 by the time we announce it next week. Take some time, get in there, and also, I'd be remiss not to tell you, go to the website and read Gene's write-up for each of the characters. Uh, it'll really help give you the insight and the information you need to make an educated vote. 
but become part of the process. It's a, it's a prestigious award. Yeah, so again, if you want to check those out, it's shadowontv.com slash thronies. Without further ado, Big D, take us to the small council chambers. Shame. 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 All right, the first small council note comes from Jenna from New York. She says, hey, guys, love the show. This episode was awesome, but left me with a couple of questions. For example, where is Gendry? I feel like no one's asking themselves this. Is he at Eastwatch? If so, they didn't show him with Tormund or Beric. So are we assuming he's dead? Did they really bring him back to fight at Eastwatch, then die at the wall? Doesn't seem likely, but I don't get why every single character was literally shown if they didn't speak, like Grey Worm and Missandei. Literally every main character was shown this episode. Where the heck is Gendry? Second question. If Cersei has this plan to double-cross Jon and Danny the whole time, why the whole show? Why did she bother inviting them all to the dragon pit? Jon and Daenerys were both going north regardless of whether she agreed to this or not. Why did she lure Tyrion in for that conversation? Why did she basically lead him on to the conclusion that she was pregnant? You can tell that it was important. She wanted him to figure that out. I know people are speculating that Tyrion has alternative motives and that they might have come to an agreement that her child could take the throne after Danny. The whole can't-have-a-baby storyline keeps popping up over and over again. Again, just theories, but this would only hold up if she kept her end of the bargain of going north. I get the whole storytelling side to it, and trust me, I fully enjoyed this episode. I just find it difficult to believe that Cersei conspired with Euron and still put on this whole show. Like, what does she gain out of lying to them? I can't figure this one out. Help. Love the show. Gonna miss you guys. Until season eight, Jenna. So uh, I think it's clear that everyone has a good idea of, of who Cersei is and what Cersei does. For Cersei to immediately you know, come to this presentation, see the white, and, oh, I'm terrified, I'm joining you, let's become allies, everybody would call bullshit right away. They would see right through it. She needs to be a believable, reluctant ally. And that was her entire setup. You know, Euron throws his, his hissy fit. First, he attempts to goat Theon into a fight or a disruption. When that doesn't work, he's told to sit down. Then the white's terrifying. Does it swim? They were going to find some reason for him to leave and for Cersei to walk out. It was part of her plan. And I think here is what you see the difference between mature leaders who have had experience uh, in politics, have had experience in deception. Uh, Daenerys and Jon, for most part, are, I mean, Jon is completely incapable of lying, and Daenerys is not, you know, particularly good at it. Uh, I think Tyrion's the only, you know, wise guy they've got, maybe Sir Davos. But in essence, uh, they're not really masters of deception here. I think that you can see that although they have the military might on their side, uh, Cersei does have that that power of persuasion toward the enemy. And so I, I think that that's an important part. And like you said, Big D, and like we said before on the podcast, Cersei knows that in an all-out battle, she's screwed. And if she says, no, I will not help, um, it's quite possible that uh, that Daenerys would take that as a signal of let's just burn down King's Landing now before we even have to go to the Whites. So I think that it's in her best interest to keep up this ruse. Yeah, Tyrion had warned her to remain calm, that Cersei would do something or say something inflammatory or provocative to get a response out of her. If they showed up and she immediately acquiesced to them, they'd be like, eh, this doesn't feel right. So she incepts Tyrion with that entire conversation and touching her stomach. Of course, Tyrion's going to pick up that she's pregnant and it's going to make her decision to uh, join the fight believable. But I think she made an, a mistake, a strategic mistake. Thinking about it later on, why wouldn't she? You know, her plan is to, to let them go north, uh, have a battle of attrition, the, the army of the dead, take out some of Rallis. The biggest weapon that Daenerys has is the dragons. She would have been better off having the Lannister army pretend, go north, act as allies, and then, you know, maybe under the cover of darkness, try to kill the dragons. You could have gotten close enough. They would have thought you were friends. You could have taken out, even if you give up a quarter of the Lannister men to kill both dragons, they would have put her in a better position after the battle happens of, of at least having a chance to survive. What are these dragons, like dairy cows? They would have thought that the people were their friends. We've seen these dragons don't let anybody get near them except for John, Daenerys, and Tyrion. No, these, but it, these dragons are not chill. 
they were hanging out in the cliffs and in, in Dragonstone. You don't know if you're form if you have a formation up north and everybody's gathered together. They might land. You could have somebody throw a a, a wildfire bomb at one of them. You could you you'd have at least a chance. Tyrion clearly lays it out. If the dead win, you're dead. If the living win, they're going to come for you. Either way, she doesn't come out on top. At least throw a Hail Mary. I mean, it is possible that Cersei also sees Drogon show up and goes, oh, shit, we put a bolt through him, you know, a couple weeks ago, and he's fine now. That must be unnerving. That's a good point. He was kind of big. And her first point, Gendry, he is not going away. We got to see him again. He's got to play a bigger part. You're going to need a blacksmith. Uh, I don't think we've seen the last of him. All right. Thanks for writing in, Jenna. Uh, Next, we have Zarina from San Francisco. She writes, over the course of seven years, we've been primed as an audience that it is a regular practice for Targaryens to inbreed. Aegon Targaryen had two sister wives. Ares the Mad King had his sister as his wife, which makes Daenerys herself a product of incest and a more direct one. We've been told over and over in the books and the show that Targaryens tried to preserve their Valerian blood to maintain their connection with dragons. Yes, as many have noted, when Jon finds out, he will probably freak out and it'll most likely be hard for him to proceed with it. But Jon probably will not even feel like a Targaryen. He is a Stark, like Theon is a Stark. I believe that the fact that Jon emphasized that Theon is as much a Stark as he is a Greyjoy is a way to prepare the audience and to soften our categorical incest thinking. Even from the normal human perspective, it should be much harder for him to wed Sansa, for instance, rather than Danny. We form our family bonds mostly through the initial knowledge of being related to someone and through the bonds that we form growing up with one another. We do not have the genetic moral compass or predisposition for not being attracted to own blood. After all, from the genetics perspective, the only real implication for having an alliance with the close blood relative is that the unwanted genetic material, if such exists, like diseases, physical characteristics, mental disorders, etc., have a higher likelihood of being manifested. The real-world example, hemophilia, also known as a royal disease, a genetic disorder that due to inbreeding persisted in European royal families and made Rasputin famous, however, it is important to understand that incestual relationships did not cause it, just made it more likely to be manifested. Incest is still wrong, though, just to clarify. (laughs) It's unnatural and gross. But so were and are many things seriously. Enough now. Thanks again to you two. I wish you all the best, both of you. And that's from Zarina. Thank you, Zarina. I had this conversation the other day with my sister-in-law and and her husband. And I said, if it turned out that you found out you were related, would you just dissolve the marriage? I understand legally the ramifications and the social stigma, but you didn't know you were relatives. Would you stay together? Would you break up? And they both said they'd break up. Oh, wow. I See, I wouldn't. If I, if I found out uh, that my girlfriend was related to me, I'd be like, well... You know, if I didn't know it until now and I was attracted to you and clearly our lineage is not that close, you know, it it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference to me. Maybe it would impact the decision to have children or not. But as far as, um, you know, as far as being attracted to a person, who gives a fuck? I know this might be controversial, but if you're brother and sister and you're separated at birth, one is raised on the other side of the, of the planet, somebody's in Europe and you're raised here in, let's say, good old Kentucky. You find each other somewhere later on in life, you hit it off, you get married, you're going to end the relationship just because you share a a portion of your biological code? Is that really what the problem with incest is? Or is it the emotional component of growing up and sharing that common family experience? I mean, yeah, I think growing up in the same household is a much stronger indicator of a, of a revulsion at somebody who's related to you. But getting back to what Zerina was talking about, uh, several listeners have written in, though, and said also that it's quite possible that Daenerys's inability to bear a child has something to do with the fact that the people that she has mated with are not Targaryens. And in fact, maybe she needs a Targaryen to sort of unlock that womb. So I told you what my sister-in-law would do. What do we think Danny and John's reaction to this revelation will be? Oh, you want to talk about characters in the actual show? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think that. I think honestly, uh, if John Snow found out directly that he was Aegon Targaryen and nobody else knew, he would very much just like his stab wound want to keep it a secret. 
No way. He couldn't even keep it a secret that he had sworn fealty to Daenerys in the middle of a meeting when he should have lied. And you think he's going to keep it quiet just because he enjoyed the boat sex? No, no. I mean, what I'm saying is that he didn't want anybody to know that he was resurrected. He didn't want to know anybody that he had died and been brought back. Uh, So, you know, and he clearly was trying to keep that under wraps. And so in this case, I think the same thing. He doesn't want the throne, I don't think. And he also, I don't think he wants to be known necessarily as a Targaryen. I think that he'd be perfectly happy just being Jon Snow. No, we're not talking about what your last name is or what your your parentage is. Would he continue a relationship with Daenerys or would he tell her, hey, I'm your nephew? Yeah, I'm, I'm going with he's keeping it on the DL. No way. So wrong. That, that, that would be like hiding a venereal disease. That would be like Jon Snow found out he had herpes and he keeps sleeping with Daenerys. He has to tell her. No, I think he would tell her. I don't think he's going to tell the world. Yeah, so he tells her. So that's my point. Do they stay together? Do they keep it on the down low? Do they end it? What are they going to do? Because they're going to find out. Well, this is Game of Thrones. So I think they'll probably one of them will be dead before anybody finds out. Let's hope so. What? All right. Next up, we've got one from Jack. Uh, Jack writes, hey, guys, want to write in this week about Theon's story arc and respond to Big D directly. All right, look out, Big D. Throughout the course of the show, Theon has been a character that many feel sorry for because his suffering is ongoing. As much as he may have deserved the torture and the ridicule, it was clear that he became a broken man in need of redemption. I think that in the season finale, Theon redeemed himself, but only halfway. As both a Greyjoy and a Stark, Theon has two redemption arcs that will lead to his ultimate change of character. By freeing Sansa from the Boltons and finally seeking Jon's forgiveness, Theon has redeemed himself as a Stark. As a Greyjoy, however, he can only redeem his past misgivings by attempting to rescue Yara as she did him. Theon will likely head to Pike to confront Euron and rescue his sister, but the audience knows Euron has actually taken his fleet east in order to escort Cersei's new army. If Yara is held captive aboard Euron's ship... She is as good as dead. Yet, if Theon can travel back to Pike to save Yara, the two of them may even be able to reclaim the Iron Islands and make good on their allegiance with Danny. Keeping Theon around for this long must imply he has a role to play in the Great War, but that will only happen if he can let go of Reek completely. I can understand the frustration of watching Theon over the course of the series, because at many points his personality has been defined by weakness, submissiveness, and fear. Despite these flaws, Theon is a main character, a perspective character in the books even, and to have him killed off by a nameless Iron Islander would feel completely unceremonious within the context of the show. Some fans may lose their patience with watching Theon's pathetic attempts at survival, but they would lose faith in the show entirely if they spent seasons watching him on screen just to die in a lame fight like that. Granted, the groin kicks were totally ridiculous, but the point is that he is trying to embody the person he always wanted to be. Even in Season 7, Episode 2, we see him kill like a handful of Euron's men, so it seems he's not totally hopeless after all. As the last living son of Balon Greyjoy, the rightful heir to Pike, and a contender for the ruler of the Iron Islands, Theon has a lot to prove in Season 8. However, he's not the only character that has survived this long through fear and submissiveness. In many ways, those same characteristics defied Sansa, yet she has become one of the most clever and powerful women in Westeros. If she can grow and change into a more powerful version of herself, I'd like to think Theon can as well. Ironic, though, that he only has the balls now to stand up for what's right this late in the series. That's from Jack. Yeah, I like it. I'll, you know, the shot was fired. I'll take it. I, I agree. I'll, I'll back down. We've invested too much time in Theon as a character. To have him go out, like you said, by some unnamed Iron Islander on the beach would have been a disappointment and a waste of everything that we've seen to this point. And I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that he comes back in the end and not that he has some miraculous turnaround and he has some, you know, comes in at the last second to save the day, but in the end, make all his suffering worth it and that he learned a lesson. It would be a a proper ending to not just die on the beach meaninglessly. So I, I, I agree with you, Jack. One thing we talked about after the episode seven deep dive was the idea that how is Theon going to meet Euron at sea and battle with him and win and and how ridiculous that sounds. But one thing we didn't consider is what Jack is pointing out here is Theon could also just go back to Pike, realize that Euron's not there and come back and report to Dragonstone that something's not right here. 
you know, that where are your own ships? Where is he gone? And put uh, Daenerys and Jon Snow on alert that something is afoot, you know, uh, something stinks in Westeros. Yeah, also, he has the element of surprise. Euron doesn't believe that Theon or the remainder of, of Yar's fleet are a threat. You might catch him in the open water and anything can happen. I'm just imagining Theon attacking on a rowboat against the silence, just tapping on the hull. No, they have a ship there. They're not going to grow there. Just broadsiding the ship with his crotch. It wouldn't hurt him. All right, the next one comes in from Jez Bell, longtime listener, frequent writer, uh, and she wrote a prolific email. Again, if you want to read the entirety of these, a lot of these have been truncated just so we can fit everything into a reasonable amount of time. Uh, this is up on shadontv.com. And Jez writing in about Tyrion. She says, There's speculation that Tyrion was jealous and is really in love with Daenerys, but I have a slightly different take. Tyrion only found out that Jon had bent the knee in the dragon pits, like at the worst possible time. He had a plan and it almost worked. You could see it in his posture. Tyrion's back is turned to Jon while he tells him he's glad he bent the knee. Add that to the fact that Tyrion has made some bad strategic moves of late, and Daenerys had already started to ask for Jon's opinion. Tyrion must be feeling threatened. He was also questioning Daenerys' line of succession, perhaps seeking to cement his future. Seeing Jon and Danny hooking up and the potential for creating an heir would push him even further out of the loop. Plus, he made her leave Dario behind so that she could focus on her career, and now she goes and does this. Clegane Bowl didn't happen, but I wonder if what the Hound said to his brother might have some hidden meaning. We know that Gregor pushed Sandor into the fire when he was young. Their younger sister and father also died under suspicious circumstances. I wonder if young Sandor, perhaps unknowingly, worshipped the Lord of Light. Perhaps even as a child, he would look for visions in the fire. Thoros seemed to be confident that the Hound would see something in the fire at the old cottage and promptly trusted what Sandor saw was true. So perhaps the Hound is actually telling the mountain that the fire is coming for him. So the first portion of what she wrote with Tyrion, do you think that Tyrion's trying to look out for himself or is he looking out to ensure that the wheel stays broken for everyone? I think everything we've seen out of Tyrion's behavior as of late, with the exception of meeting up with Cersei and the impact that it had on him, seems to indicate that he has very benevolent intentions, that the collection of power isn't necessarily uh, what he cares about, nor is it you know selfish motivation. He seems very selfless uh, in his belief in Daenerys. And so I don't know that uh, necessarily he would be feeling pushed out, but rather that he would feel helpless to help her if he's out of the loop, that he believes that the advice uh, that she's getting might not be great. Uh, for instance, Tyrion has always seen himself as a, as a check or a balance. He even says that, that he's kind of there to counter the impulses of Daenerys. And so he might be worried that there that he will lose his influence with her. I've never gotten the feeling from Tyrion that he's power hungry. I'm starting to think that Tyrion wants to find a line of secession that isn't based on family name or who your brother or sister is, that it's whoever in a lineage is fitting, who should lead. Because often we find the ones who fight their way into the position to lead are the ones who shouldn't be leading. Whereas you have men like Ned Stark, who are principled, very honorable men. Ned had a chance to take the seat, but allowed Robert to sit instead and take the throne. Tyrion might want to try to find a way that the, the ruler who should be, who's best deserving, would do the job, would, would fit. But I don't think he's worried about himself. Now, with regards to Clegane Bowl, I think that the way you interpreted what the Hound said to the Mountain uh, is really shaded by the way you interpret the Hound, right? So some people think that he is a changed man, that he is seeing uh, some glimmers of faith, whereas uh, he was faithless before. You know, he famously uh, is quoted as, you know, when, when being asked why he's still alive, he said he's a big fucker and he's hard to kill, right? He's very factual. And, but now we see he's had, he's had a vision. Uh, he seems to be a lot more calm. I mean, he's still himself, but, but he's got some uh, greater purpose here. And so it really is the question of, do you, if you believe that he's still the same old hound, that he um, is a, a worldly man, a man who believes in what is concrete and before him. I think that he's telling the mountain that he's coming for him personally, uh, that it's not settled. Um, but I believe that if you believe that he is a man now who believes in some sort of divine entity or some sort of greater spiritual purpose, then he might believe that, yeah, in fact, 
that the fire itself is coming for him. Uh, what I found interesting in that conversation is the hound looks into his brother's eyes and says, are you in there? Are you in there? Do you remember me? And there's an acknowledgement. We've convinced ourselves that the, the mountain is a mindless zombie guardian. The hound has given a little glimmer of hope to the thought that the mountain is not completely devoid of his prior uh, self, that there could still be some of him in there. I had never even considered that. Well, you say that like his prior self was the flying nun or something. I mean, he was a shitty guy to begin with. Right, but we're thinking now he's something other than human. He could be a shitty human, but at least there's some humanity in him that I still believe they're going to duel, they're going to go at it eventually, and hopefully the Hound gets revenge. But there is some remainder of the old mountain there leaves it opened that he's just not going to blindly follow orders. Yeah, and, you know, both of us are really turned off by cheeseball notions, uh, things that people see coming from a mile away. Wouldn't it be cool ifs? But I think in this case, like a clip of Game Bowl, it's got to happen. And some people have said, you know, maybe it'll be uh, Barrick who takes out the mountain. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that. Like, I think people want mountain on hound action. That sounded dirty. Everything does to you. They better get the that actor back. Because the two of them next to each other, that was definitely not that Icelandic strongman. They look roughly about the same height. They better get back that beast of a man. Big D, always looking for that beast of a man. Thanks for writing in. Next up, we have one from Stacy E., uh, another repeat writer. She says, hey, Big D and Gene. So I've been hearing a lot of people talking about redemption arcs for Theon and Sansa specifically. And for many seasons. And I don't get why anyone is on board with this, whether they like what they perceive as redemption or hate it. The unpopular opinion is that Sansa and Theon are not redemption arc characters. They are contrast characters to Arya and Aegon. Two sisters and two outcast brothers, all raised by the same dad, but very different outcomes based on their individual character guiding their choices. George R.R. Martin's characters are shades of gray. Redemption arc implies... This one time at band camp, I stuck a loot in my jam jam, but now I'm married with two kids and a dog and go to church every Sunday, or vice versa. In these conversations about redemption arcs, fans often cite forgiveness, righting wrongs, or some specific act of courage, strength, bravery. First, forgiveness is about the person doing the forgiven, not the person asking for it. Asking for, seeking, or expecting forgiveness doesn't really say much about a person, contrary to popular belief. I'm sure we all know people that go to church so they can be sinners the rest of the week. And second, the misdeeds, cowardice, selfishness, stupidity, and the consequences that result cannot be undone. There are no do-overs for being raped, having your one-eyed bishop lopped off, or death. In fact, I would argue those ordeals exaggerate and expose who people are at their core, the simple truth that adversity reveals someone's true character. So there really isn't redemption to be had when we're talking about Sansa and Theon. The damage is done. There are only more choices looking forward in hopes that people will grow and learn from their mistakes, to consciously alter their shade of gray, if only for a moment. Am I missing something here? It's like we are all in a George R.R. Martin theme club, and the first rule is we aren't supposed to talk about George R.R. Martin themes. I'm looking forward to the deep dive. Thanks, Stacey E. Stacey, I like it a lot. We've embraced the fact that people aren't black and white. They're not good and bad. They're shades of gray. So why do we always insist on trying to force a traditional redemption arc on these characters? I think part of that is what season seven has done to the characters, though, because what's great about Game of Thrones, and you know, you could say the acting, you could say the special effects, you know, the intrigue, but one of the things that I really liked is you, it's almost become a cultural icon for... Uh, nuanced characters and for good people doing bad things and bad people doing good things, you know? Uh, and so people would say, you know, is Ned Stark a good guy? Well, I mean, he executed a guy for pretty much no reason other than he was supposed to, right? Or you could say, uh, you know, is Jamie a bad guy? Well, I mean, he did push a child through a window, but you also see that he's, you know, he's done good in this, in this story. And so I think what we're seeing a lack of in season seven is that, is that nuance. It seems in this case, the good people do good things and the bad people do bad things. And there's not a lot of crossing over. And I think the closest we got to it was Daenerys executing the Tarleys. And even in that case, I felt like she was pretty damn justified. I was kind of surprised that some people thought it was unfair. 
Uh, I think it's a side effect of the rushed pace and the jetpacking. When you're forced to trim down the plot and what we see on camera, we no longer see them traveling around. We, we no longer see those secondary conversations. That's why the nuance has disappeared. But the characters, you have to believe, are still acting in the same way, even though we don't see it. So I hope that there is no miraculous last-minute save. Nobody comes through and does something in the end that everyone will cheer, not force our traditional expectations on a show that has been anything but traditional. We really appreciate that insight, Stacy. Thanks for writing in. Next, we have one from Mitch. Mitch writes, Hey, guys, uh, this isn't an um actually, but more of a comment. As we know, music in this show is so visceral and has such a big part of the mood and how the action on screen is to be relayed to the audience at home. In that vein, there exists a neat article from Vanity Fair, and we've got the link included in the email, that details how the music, tracks, and motifs, as released at the onset of the season, details the future of the show. Title tracks, such as Nobody Walks Away From Me, are now obvious references to Cersei's repeated threatening comments made in the season 7 finale. Furthermore, when John and Danny's tryst is predicted by the title track Truth, which interlocks both of their musical signatures from the show while they're doing their own kind of interlocking. Anyway, obsessed fans should definitely look to the Vanity Fair article for these neat and otherwise hard-to-notice connections or for a richer experience. Just wanted you to draw your attention if you miss this creative piece of writing. My girlfriend turned me on to it, so shout out to Gabby. Hey, Gabby. As always, love the podcast. Sad this chapter is over, but I can't wait for 2019. Oh, and Westworld 2. Best, and that's Mitch from Pit Law. Yeah, Westworld coming back spring of 2018. We're getting a little bit early, so excited about that. Great article. We'll put a link to it in the notes. When you're working on a project like this and you throw in these Easter eggs, you have to be hoping that the audience cares enough to really dive in and find this. How many other shows do you think go the extra mile like this to to place those hidden little messages in the in even the score titles? Do you think other shows do it and people just don't invest the time to unearth them? I mean, there was Seinfeld. Was that a joke? Or are you being serious? No, it's a joke. Okay, thank God. I thought maybe there was some hidden meaning uh, <laughs> no. behind it that I had just completely gone over my head. No, but Raj uh, treated me to a, a live presentation of uh, the Game of Thrones music, and Ramjan Dawadi was there and basically presented uh, the different pieces, the different movements, and you had visual accompaniment on the screens. And it made so much sense in that setting because you know the lights were changing, outfits were changing, and the screens were changing. And you really could hear, um, as, as Mitch refers to, people have, uh, whether it's houses or individual characters, uh, they have their uh, musical signatures, as he calls them. Um, and so when you hear greater compositions, you can hear hints of those signatures in there, kind of like Peter and the Wolf. And so it, it gives you hints as to who will be involved in those different pieces. So it's really cool that they actually released the music before the season came out, uh, and people could then guess what was going to come, almost foreshadowing through the music. That's that's a really, really deep connection. I got a good set of you know, wireless headphones, 7.1 Dolby Surround. So I've been watching the episodes lately with my headphones on. If you don't have a good pair of headphones, sometimes sit back and listen because the music that can be buried in the background of scenes when you're watching it on normal TV or even surround sound, get a good pair of headphones and you'll truly appreciate the music. All right. Thanks for writing in, Mitch. Uh, next up, we have one from Maggie. Maggie writes, hi. So my working theory on Tyrion's strange lurking in the shadows while John and Danny were together is this. The last moment Tyrion and Cersei were together before she comes out saying she will join forces to defeat the dead is when Tyrion discovers she is pregnant. What if Tyrion made a deal with her to promise her baby to the future child of John and Daenerys? Cersei's motivation besides her own power is the legacy and power of House Lannister, her new little Lannister, uniting with a potential little Stark and Targaryen, is the ultimate culmination of these three great houses. Her child will rule no matter what. Tyrion makes this backroom deal to get Cersei on board, and now seeing the lovers is feeling the weight of this betrayal and its potential consequences. I just don't buy he's in love with Daenerys and his feelings are hurt. He's done something he regrets. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and I can't wait to hear your theories. Maggie. It was a heartfelt apology. Even Joffrey, who was one of the most despicable, despisable human beings, he feels guilty for his demise and the way he went out. Even though 
he had made Tyrion's life miserable. So if he did have a chance to somehow make a promise to Cersei, not that the child would lead, but that the child had a chance to continue, much like Daenerys did the Targaryen name, that if this all goes wrong, I will ensure that that child is protected so the family name doesn't die. Yeah, and Maggie, I really like this theory. The only issue I have with it is that it would it would depend upon Cersei and Tyrion both believing that uh, John and Danny were going to create a child to begin with. And I think that, uh, one, I think Tyrion does believe that Daenerys uh, has a barren womb. I believe that uh, also Cersei has no way to predict that John and Daenerys were going to, you know, copulate there. It seems, it seems you know, when you look at it on its face, you're going, hmm. Uh, she's probably not concerned with that particular tryst at the moment. It's kind of off the radar there. So that's the only thing I would say is it's it's assuming a lot about the two of them. Not everybody uh, in the show is privy to as much information about the show as the audience is. No, and there's no way that Daenerys or John would allow that child to to come to power. But Cersei believes he wants to kill the family and end the family. He may have just promised a way to keep it alive. But I don't think, under any circumstance, would he promise power or it was a, a place on the throne. He, Cersei would just look for a way to keep the family name alive. Thanks for your letter, Maggie. Uh, next up, we have one from Ronald. Ronald writes, If Ned knew about the Targaryen baby Jon Snow and committed to raising him in secrecy, you would think he would have known about the wedding and the feelings Lyanna had for Prince Rhaegar. He did find out that the baby was a Targaryen, which wouldn't be possible unless there was a wedding. Why would Ned know about all this and commit to playing such a large role supporting King Robert? Why would he never tell Catelyn and contend with over a decade of resentment from his wife? Was Ned spineless? Did he maintain the lie about beating Sir Arthur Dane when we all know Howland Reed stabbed him in the back? Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. P.S. Love the podcast. And that's from Ronald. So is Ned a hypocrite? Did he... Because he allows uh, the rightful heir to be raised in anonymity and eventually take the black, doesn't this kind of go against everything we've been led to believe about Ned as an honorable man? No, I think it actually makes sense for him because here you see Ned, John, Aaron, and Robert are involved in essentially, it's a rebellion. And so the rebellion against the Targaryens, at the time, he's not aware that his own sister is giving birth to a Targaryen. Therefore, finding that out, he knows that that baby would be slaughtered. I mean, there is no way that after rebellion, they're going to allow a Targaryen to live to take the throne. But it wasn't a rebellion against the Targaryens. It was a rebellion against the Mad King under the guise that he had kidnapped, raped, abducted Lyanna. Ned now knows that's a lie. Robert's rebellion was based on a lie. The Mad King is dead. There is now an heir apparent whose rightful place is the Iron Throne who wasn't threatening to burn down King's Landing. But you got to remember, at the same time, they were wiping out Targaryens. That was part of the rebellion. Well, they they did it afterwards, yes. But what about the fact that Ned lets this lie spread around Westeros, that he bested the best swordsman in the land? I mean, look, again, he's getting back to the whole concept of, of, of characters and having shades of gray here. Ned has a, a fine moral code, but he's, again, it's beneficial uh, if you are the Warden of the North, for people to think that you are a master swordsman. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily... I mean, it's a white lie. I don't think it's the worst lie in the world. It's also possible that Ned you know, let the story grow in an attempt to protect Howland Reed's honor, because no knight wants to... You know, Look at what Jamie has to, be, has to have dealt with, being called the Kingslayer, even though he did it for the right reasons and saved people's lives. He might not have wanted his friend Howland Reed to walk around and have people call him, hey, the backstabber, look at the backstabber. So he might have been looking out for a friend. So I think the point here, Ronald, the, the overall answer is that Ned is not a, a perfect character. He's a very moral character. But there are some certain instances, uh, maybe John could stand to learn from a little bit, where you got to tell a little white lie. Or maybe if it's to protect the life of a child, you know, you have to, uh, to keep a lie going for an entire lifetime. So, yeah, I, I don't think this tarnishes uh, Ned's legacy or makes him a phony. All right, with that, we're rounding the corner to our final lap. The next one comes up from Rusty in Birmingham. Rusty writes, why would Clegane Bowl happen other than forcing it for fan service? Gregor didn't even react to Sandor's shit-talking. 
He is a zombie who only reacts to Cersei's commands and threats to her person. Unless the Hound goes after Cersei, why would the Mountain bother with a fight? A challenge to his pride will only fall on deaf zombie ears. Regarding the Lannister legacy, shouldn't Tyrion be making some moves to ensure the survival of his house, specifically a marriage alliance? He has to know that a Daenerys victory results in the total destruction of all Lannisters save Tyrion. So Tyrion must realize that this ends with him being the Hand of the Queen, Warden of the West, Lord of Casterly Rock, with no wife or children. That's a pretty impressive resume to help with negotiating alliance with a great house. Might he end up with Sansa? Or was their marriage annulled when she was sold to the Boltons? Love the show. Keep up the good work. Rusty. Yeah, so Rusty is predicating his thought of why would there be a Clegane Bowl uh, that it fall on deaf ears, that the mountain is a zombie. But we, we talked about in one of your earlier emails that there is an inkling. There is a little bit of the mountain left in there. So if they are going to fight, you can explain it within the, the realm of the, the plot but the real reason that we will get it inevitably is fan service. If you watch the after the episode for the finale, or I think it was it was episode six, Beyond the Wall, the Double Ds went in detail about how they'd been pushing for a white polar bear for like the last four seasons. So they just shoved it into the plot, even though it we could have done without it than Beyond the Wall. We didn't need it. I'm worried they're going to do the same thing. Everybody's clamoring. They want Clegane Bowl. Uh, do you think there's a chance that the Double Ds are going to force it in, even though it doesn't make sense from a plot point? I think that's absolutely possible. Uh, we've seen a couple things in Season 7 that didn't quite make sense, but uh, they were there, and they made for good viewing, at least. And so I think this is another one of those cases where if it looks cool... You know, one of the things I was thinking about was when this show had a small budget, there was a lot more talking. There was a lot more intrigue. And as the budget grew bigger and they could get bigger effects, the emphasis went away from that and more toward action and more toward spectacle. And so I think that this would be something uh, huge. And also, once they saw the ratings that they got or the fan appreciation they had for the Viper versus the Mountain, it only makes sense that you would have this happen, even if it doesn't make sense getting there. And Sansa Tyrion ending up together, I don't think, I think a lot worse things could happen. Of all the men in Sansa's life, Tyrion was the one who treated her with respect. He didn't abuse her. You know, he could have taken her. He had every right to consummate that marriage. Sansa still has some affection for him and respect for him. I think it would be a good place in the end if the two of them got together. Don't you? Yeah, and one of the things I like about that is Tyrion is uh, is playing the the long game here, and it sparked the idea that when this is all over, look at all the houses that are just wiped out now, right? So the Tarleys, if you don't consider Samwell because he's still, uh, you know, a, a brother, if you take out, you know, the the Tyrells as well, so there is this entire continent, and they're going to need leadership. They're going to need people, and so for the people who are left. This is an amazing opportunity. Uh, Tyrion can become a very, very powerful person uh, once this is all over. And I think that, again, like you said, there aren't a lot of suitors uh, with uh, with anything attractive to offer Sansa. It could be a, a match made in heaven, or at least a match made in war. And you know Tyrion respects Sansa's intellect. He told Jon she's, she's a smart girl. She might not let on, but that's one of the things he looks for. He has to have uh, a partner who's equally intelligent and Sansa might have started off slow but she's getting there so I, I think it's a good couple you know we have the good looking beautiful couple with John and Daenerys let's get the the slightly damaged nice couple no, no wait a second Sophie Turner and Peter Dinklage are both very good looking actors uh, hold on Daenerys and, and Jon Snow are like an Abercrombie and Fitch ad okay so yes Peter Dinklage is a good looking guy Sansa's good-looking, but it's not the beautiful Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie combination of Jon Snow and Daenerys. All right, I'll give you that. Okay, and finally, uh, we've got our last email comes from Ryan. Ryan writes, Despite the exhilaration and relief of the Littlefinger accusation reveal, something left a bad taste in my mouth. The showrunner set up a conflict and then jumped to the conclusion without showing the turn or aha moment. It's as if they cut a crucial scene and left everyone wondering when Arya and Sansa got on the same side. In an earlier scene in this episode, Littlefinger mentions that Jon can be unnamed as King of the North. Sansa gives a smirk that on second viewing can be interpreted as she has discovered Littlefinger's motives at this point and is baiting him. 
In their last scene together, Arya mentions to Sansa that she never would have survived what Sansa went through. So there was obviously a come-to-Jesus meeting in between the episodes for all of them to get caught up on everything. It would be like if Sam went to John and said, you're a Targaryen, without us seeing him talk to Bran. I'm just a little sad we didn't get to witness it. Throughout the show and its many surprise deaths, we've always been given the reasoning behind it. The timing or circumstances may have surprised us, but the setup scenes were always shown, which leads to my next point. Leave it to Game of Thrones not to give us what we want. Over six seasons, this show has built up a universe of surprise deaths. Deaths come when tension is built and tension isn't built. On the first viewing of this episode, I know I wasn't the only one who watched with a clinched anus for 80-something minutes. The tension was enormous. Would the dragon pit be a trap? Would Cersei kill Tyrion or Jaime? The Jaime scene in particular was disheartening since Cersei appeared to give the order to execute him. Maybe the undead mountain used his own restraint or moral code to not cut Jaime down in an instant. That doesn't sound like the mindless head crusher the story has built. People may say that Jaime's story isn't done, and that's what I find frustrating. This series has built a reputation for characters not finishing their own stories, but now that it's in the final season, it has become every other fantasy tale. Main characters either can't be killed or will be miraculously saved over and over until the final episode. This show has defied the fantasy genre for six seasons, and now it has defied our appreciation for that. This show has built a massive following upon the premise that it won't give you a Hollywood ending. Perhaps it will after all. Apart from the massive Jamie death trolling, this leads me to who should have died in this episode. Theon should have bit the dust. Our dickless wonder got his moment in the sun this week. The heart-to-heart with Jon was truly the pep talk he needed. It would have been perfectly paired with the next scene wherein Theon gets beat to death by his own men sworn to his family. As he betrayed the Stark family, a surprising beatdown, or better yet, a spear through the gut from an unnamed member of his own men would have been a fitting and surprising end. He betrayed the Starks, he betrayed his sister twice, now he finally finds the willpower to save her. What better story turn than to pay off all that backstory with a swift and sudden betrayal by his own men? I can't imagine where his story arc goes. Maybe he does find and rescue Yara with his ten men. Then what? Will they one-up Euron and build a thousand ships and breed a thousand sailors in one episode? And that's from Ryan. Damn you, Ryan. The email before had already swayed me back to thinking that Theon uh, deserved a, a more fitting end. Now you've got me flipping again, thinking he should have been killed. You got me all mixed up here. Damn you, writers. Yeah, this would have been great. If you had the pep talk, he's like, all right, let's go save Yara. And then he just gets stabbed. <laughs> nope. We'll probably get another email down the line where I'm going to go back again. But a point he makes, I want to ask you, what do you think the audience is hoping for percentage wise? Do you think, you know, 50, 50, they want a happy ending, 51, a sad. What ending are people expecting? I mean, it's hard to say because I said earlier in this season that people don't watch this show for happy endings. If they did, they would have stopped watching a long time ago because it's so crushing and your favorite heroes. I mean, when Rob Stark got killed, I was emotionally damaged by it. He was, to me, one of the coolest heroes I'd ever seen. I loved his his mix of rebelliousness and duty, and it was hard to see. And then Cat Stark, again, in the same episode, uh, just an incredible character who I love dearly, watching her lost. And so it's exactly what Ryan says, is that these are people who weren't able to finish their stories. And that was what hurt the most, was that they didn't get to complete their arcs that and that's life right i mean that's that's what's sad about when somebody when you know somebody who's 80 years old and has lived a full life and and goes peacefully that's not what hurts what hurts is when it's somebody who's cut down in their prime or if they had big dreams something they wanted to do with themselves and so on the other hand i read twitter and i see people's reactions on facebook uh, to what's going on in the show and i'm surprised by how many people want a happy ending out of this i'm just worried that the show has lost the ability to surprise us we fell in love with the show because of the unpredictability of the plot. No one would have thought that Ned would be killed in the first season. You know, other than, you know, Littlefinger, the reveal, oh, how do you plead Peter Baelish? That was a, oh, wow. I don't remember recently being surprised like the show used to. Yeah, I think the surprise in that scene would have been if Arya was actually killed. Like, then people were like, holy shit. Like, I thought it was going to be Peter Baelish. I thought it's going to, certainly it's going to turn. Certainly it's going to turn. Nope. Like, it's, he, they're actually killing Arya. And the, and the injustice of it, you know, is, is what would be uh, really fascinating. But, and, and some people might argue that the characters who are left 
are the toughest of the tough, right? They're left for a reason that they have the survival skills, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Plenty of people died earlier on in the show that had that were very tough, and other people who are alive that you know aren't particularly tough at all. And so I, I think that uh, you know Ryan's got a point here. Other than, do you really want a show that's just killing people to kill them just to, for shock value? No, I don't want to be shocked just for shock value, but I don't want the ending to be something traditional and predictable. Everyone has a theory. I hope the show has something that's unique. Don't give us that. If I do not want a happy ending. I don't want a bleak ending. I want a combination that I might not have seen coming. An outcome that when I look back on the series as a whole, I say, shit, I didn't see that we were going to come to this end. And it makes the rest of the pieces, like the callbacks this season to little interactions, have an ending that will make us call back moments throughout the series that we, upon second viewing, should have picked up on, hey, this is actually leading us to this ending. And that would feel rewarding. But if we all at the end, it's a traditional ending that you know we call, could have all seen coming, it's going fee- to diminish the overall reputation and the place of Game of Thrones in television history. All right. Thanks, Ryan, for that exciting and thought-provoking email. And that brings us to the point in the small council where we read your corrections to us. Uh, if you do have corrections for us, feel free to write in at hosts at shoutontv.com uh, or you can tweet at us at shoutontv. And if you include in the tweet a hashtag um actually or in the email subject line um actually, we'll be sure to catch it and read it on the air. Uh, I'll do the honors of starting the first one. And this one comes from John from Perth, Western Australia. He says, uh, I feel a need to comment on the what the fuck point nine from your previous show. It was pointed out that Benjen couldn't pass through the wall because of the enchantments protecting it. He had been dying from his injuries and the children of the forest had brought him back, which meant he couldn't pass through the wall. The same as the Night King and his army. You also questioned how you could get a white past it. I assume flying over it was fine. What wasn't questioned was how do Beric and John pass through the wall? Uh, actually, Beric has died six times and been brought back and John once or twice if the long claw theory is true. Perhaps Rylor gives him a free pass. And that comes from John from Perth, Western Australia. John's heart's beating. Yes, they were dead and they came back, but he wasn't walking around dead. I think that was the premise that you couldn't come south while you were still dead. When you, once your heart's beating, maybe the spell didn't keep you out, but come on, we haven't been given enough of the actual rules to to understand it yeah i think the key difference there is that is that benjen uh was kept alive or brought back uh by the children of the forest and here clearly you know beric and and john it's from the lord of light so it's a different power source Uh, i don't think the lord of light is powering the whites either so i think that's the key difference okay the next one we got here is from Haley. Um, actually, I think it was Big D who mentioned the Instacast. The Hound said, you know what's coming for you. When in fact, the Hound said, you know who's coming for you. Which I think makes a big difference because it's clear reference to himself killing the mountain. Again, great work. Love y'all. Haley from Texas. You are correct, Haley. He did say that. Clegane Bowl most likely will happen because it's predictable and what the fans want. And if they truly wanted to surprise us and become unpredictable again... What would the fan base do if the mountain kills the hound? Oh, revolt, revolt. Mm. All right, next one comes up from Gary. Uh, Gary writes, uh, actually, John does know Bran is alive. He sends a raven to Dragonstone warning, John, this leads to the shittiest plan ever. Wait, who said that he didn't know he was alive? Uh, that was me. Oh, okay, good. Because uh, I knew it. I said that he knew it. Good. Next one comes from Eric. Um, actually, I have one pertinent ob- observation. Never, ever has it occurred to me that there's an upside to not having testicles. Go, Theon. Kind regards, Eric. I think there are many upsides to not having testicles. Upsides? Yeah. Wait, uh, ovaries? If you have ovaries, it's okay. But uh, being a man without testicles, that's going to cause some problems. Ah, They just get in the way. All right, next up, we have one from John Y., uh, he says, um, actually, who built the fucking set for Eastwatch? It looked like 
the set of a soap opera. Did they mess that scene in editing? Were the CG guys out that day? Am I the only one who thinks this? For God's sake, the Night King looked like the kids in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids bouncing on the back of that bumblebee, and Viserion was flying around like he had a jet engine up his ass. Yeah, John, hate, 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 hate. I love it. Next one comes from Megan P. Um, Actually, I'm not sure if you guys really think that Theon's kill scene wasn't very important. But did you not realize who he killed? He killed his uncle. The death of Euron was way important to the destruction of Cersei's plan. And that came from Megan P. Yeah, and I think Megan P. wrote back a little while later. <laughs> yes, Megan, was, Megan wasn't the only one who somehow mistook that vanilla Iron Islander who Theon kills as Euron. So don't feel bad, Megan. You're not the only one. But you get an um, actually. Next up, we have one from Ben E. Who writes, uh, maybe I'm projecting my love of animals onto the show. But um, actually, I'd say that Viserion counts as a huge death. Uh, You're not kidding, Ben. I mean, literally a huge death. But also, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we said in this in this season is like, well, nobody died. Like, well, actually, Lady Olenna died. Uh, Littlefinger died. (laughs) Viserion died. Uh, Thoros died. So we had a few. I think people people really want one of those grand poobah deaths. Although, honestly, uh, in in episode seven, I found myself strangely rooting against any deaths at all. And our last one comes from Kara. Actually. Any of you guys who care about your sister at all would choose Grey Worm to date their sister. Let's be honest. Kara is obviously referencing our uh, Throny Awards. Right. So for anybody who hasn't voted yet uh, and seen my incredible handiwork on the website, uh, the Throny Awards are our way of encouraging the fans to vote for their favorite scenes and characters uh, from season seven, and you can go to them uh, and vote for yourself and read the descriptions at www.shadontv.com slash thronies. We, we decided to put in an open field option on these. So you can vote for like best hero, best villain. And we put, you know, the ones that you would expect to see, Jon Snow, Cersei. But we left an open field in case we forgot somebody that maybe you wanted to nominate. Uh, and the responses we got were predictably amazing. They're almost better than the ones we came up with. Yeah, we had stuff like under best hero, we had Cersei fucking Lannister. And someone made a good point to me that we left out a potential who would you want to date your sister that Yara should have been included. Absolutely, and and, and that was a very good case made for it. Uh, we also, uh, <laughs> for the best season seven performance by a non-human, someone nominated dumb cunt. And then they specified that's the white that the hound threw a rock at. We also had uh, under uh, the biggest uh, season seven Fan gripes. I think that was probably my favorite category. Uh, someone just listed the Aria Sansa plotline of shit. And also, there were only seven episodes when they clearly could have had ten. Yes, people getting creative. Uh, yeah, so if you'd like to contribute your thoughts or just drop in a vote, uh, again, we've got hundreds of people voting, and, and you can vote as many times as you like because this isn't scientific. Uh, you can go to shoutontv.com, and actually, even on the homepage, uh, Big D has put a handy voting button over on the right-hand side, so you just click on the thronies and uh, give us your vote. Uh, also, if you have any comments to leave on the blog post itself, uh, you can go ahead and let me know what I got right, what I got wrong. We'd appreciate your feedback. Yeah, we post all the emails on the website, and the ones that we've read, if you want to read the full uh, untruncated, abridged versions, uh, there's a tag in a category called Red on the Small Council, so you can find all those. Uh, The Thronies, we're going to do it next week. Uh, We're going to do a season wrap-up podcast, incorporate the Thronies, uh, talk about what we thought of the season, also what we hope for season eight, and the long wait that we have coming ahead of us, but make sure you get in there and vote. Uh, Cause I think we're going to stop it probably on Monday before we record. Uh, so hopefully we get a couple thousand submissions, uh, write in, be creative. Uh, Cause we'll probably read off the most creative ones on the podcast as well. Absolutely. That concludes this week's episode of On the Throne Small Council. We want to thank everyone for writing in with your amazing emails. Uh, It really is a blessing to read those all and connect with you. Uh, Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at ShadowTV. Facebook, search for ShadowTV Podcast. The website is ShadowTV.com. If you'd like to write into us uh, with your thoughts, corrections, or just a little bit of love, uh, you can write us at hosts at ShadowTV.com. 
We're everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe, and if you stop by iTunes, please do leave a review that helps the podcast grow. Finally, if you like Shat on TV, check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we review the best 80s and 90s movies from our childhood that you, the audience, vote for. You can check out all that information at shatthemovies.com. Uh, we've slowed down the cadence there and kind of done some reruns uh, the last few weeks while we were doing Game of Thrones. Now that we could ramp that back up again, expect a fresh movie every week. Uh, in addition, uh, for those of you who have followed us from Westworld or who are just discovering us now, uh, we are going to be ramping up the Westworld podcast in anticipation of Westworld coming back in the spring. And if you feel a gap in your life right now and uh, with Game of Thrones gone and you haven't watched Westworld, we highly, highly recommend the show, not just because we covered it. So go check that out. Along with our other podcasts, we also did uh, American Gods and Taboo. Taboo. On behalf of my co-host, Big D Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Tuesday for our final Game of Thrones deep dive. Thanks for listening, and as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne.